Matt Podolsky here. Before we jump into today's episode, I need to make a quick fundraising pitch. Why am I forcing you to listen to me ask for money? Conservation and environmental issues in general don't receive enough funding. On a fundamental level, there is a massive discrepancy between the scale of the environmental crisis that we now find ourselves in and the amount of financial resources that we, as a society, choose to allocate to solving this planetary crisis. Where does that leave us? Here at Wildlands, we are competing for an extremely limited pool of funding, and we have made the conscious decision to ask our listeners, you, for financial support. This show will remain as a free resource for sharing information about critically important environmental issues only if those of you who are financially able choose to make a small contribution. So this is my plea to you. Help us correct this massive financial imbalance just a little bit by showing us your support. Patreon is a crowdsourced fundraising platform that allows creators like us to solicit recurring donations. So we're asking listeners to pledge a small contribution for each episode that we produce. We're offering some cool rewards for those of you who wish to contribute. So take a look at the campaign at patreon.com slash wildlenscollective. If today's was a normal episode, we would now launch into the show. But today's interview is with Wildlens Collective member, Ramey Newell. You'll be hearing about Ramey's fascinating new documentary project about wolves in Denali National Park, and you'll also have the opportunity to directly help Ramey bring this project to fruition. So if, after listening to our interview with Ramey, you believe that her project has value, please take a moment to watch her campaign video and make a pledge to her crowdsource funding campaign on Seed and Spark. You'll find the link on the show notes page for this episode, wildlandsinc.org slash EOC183. Now, finally, let's start the show. So in, in many places in Alaska, you know, people still view the 1980 Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act as being a, a land grab by the federal government. It, it removed areas from any kind of resource development, often changed or, or eliminated hunting and trapping opportunities in these areas, and was seen as the imposition of values of people who like to visit here, but live far, far away. That was Professor Tim Rawson from Alaska Pacific University, speaking about the controversy over federally managed public lands in Alaska. This controversial topic is intertwined with another fascinating and controversial topic, wolf conservation and management. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 183. Today's guest is a filmmaker working to document the complex situation unfolding in Denali National Park surrounding the management of this area's wolf population. My name's Ramey Newell, and I'm an independent documentary filmmaker, uh, and I'm based in British Columbia, but I am an American, and um, I'm currently working on a feature-length documentary project that explores a 40-year controversy surrounding a tract of land adjacent to Denali National Park, and specifically the way that um, hunting and trapping regulations impact the local community there 
um, and um, even more specifically, regulations pertaining to the hunting and trapping of predators, so wolves and grizzly bears mostly. How did you learn about this issue, and like, what inspired you to, you know, embark upon this uh, this project, uh, you know, this idea to tell this story. Yeah. Wolves have been in the news quite a bit recently, uh, you know, especially around Yellowstone and issues regarding, like you said, wolf predation and conflicts between ranchers. And Denali is really fascinating in that, um, there is no ranching community around Denali. So the conflict around wolves up there is a little bit different than it is in the lower 48. Uh, I became involved in this issue uh, partly because of a previous film that I made with um, an individual down in Colorado where there's currently a push to reintroduce wild wolves. And so Alaska Wildlife Alliance, which is a very small uh, wildlife advocacy organization up in Alaska, uh, had seen that film and so contacted me about possibly exploring this issue. And like I said, this is a, this dates back 40 years in Alaska and this conflict has been unabated during that time. And, um, you know, wildlife advocates have been fighting for increased protections, uh, specifically for wolves in this area for decades, uh, and also to some extent bears. And they've had limited successes. For a while, there was a, a, a buffer zone uh, in place that did limit the hunting and trapping of wolves, but that was rescinded in 2010. So this is an ongoing uh, controversy and conflict in this area. And uh, I was contacted by Alaska Wildlife Alliance to possibly do a film about it. And uh, so I spent several months looking into the issue and it became very quickly apparent to me that this is not only a really compelling story, but also a really important one that points to a lot of larger issues regarding how we relate to um, animals and how we relate to wild places and um, larger conservation themes. Let's dive into the issue itself because... You know, as you mentioned, there there is no ranching community surrounding Denali National Park, right? And like that's what we associate like most of the conflicts uh, regarding wolves. I feel like a lot of it is is connected to conflicts between you know ra the ranching community uh, who you know fear that wolves are going to predate their livestock. Uh, but if that's not an issue in Denali uh, up in Alaska. You know, what is it? You know, what what is the fear like what's creating this this conflict, I guess? Yeah, that's what's really fascinating about this specific story is that there is no fear of predation on livestock. Alaskans don't have livestock. The climate is too harsh to raise cattle up there. So they consider their moose and their other ungulates to sort of be their livestock as far as um, harvest and feeding your family, especially in more rural communities. And statewide, there definitely is a narrative around controlling predators in order to uh, ensure harvestable levels of ungulates. Uh, and, you know, the science that um, indicates that this is an effective strategy is um, not really that clear, but that is the theory behind statewide predator control programs. Now, the specific conflict in and around Denali National Park doesn't really re uh, involve predator control policies per se, because predator control is enacted by the state. So state agents will actually go out and call wolves and bears to supposedly protect 
ungulates. However, in this one area of land, which is called the, the Wolf Townships or the Stampede Corridor, predator control programs are not at issue. So the issue is actually a handful of hunters and trappers whose livelihood depends on hunting and trapping wolves and bears. And they um, legally harvest wolves and bears near the border with Denali National Park in this strip of state-owned land. And uh, wildlife advocates uh, point out that most of these animals uh, at other times of the year uh, mostly inhabit protected Denali National Park lands and then during the winter head out into this area of state controlled land, which then exposes them to hunting and trapping. So they argue that um, it's really the park animals that are being killed in this area and that's why uh, protection should be increased. You know, you're saying that that this issue is focused on this one relatively small area where there's a group of people whose livelihoods depend on predator trapping. How, right? Like, how are these people earning money trapping predators? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, is is quite confusing for uh, a lot of folks, especially in the lower 48. So Alaska is pretty unique in America in so far as, uh, you know, a, a large portion of its population lives what we would consider to be fairly off grid, right? So a lot of them don't even have running water or electricity. Um, they really are, are fairly resilient people who uh, tend to live off the land. A lot of them build their own houses. It's really pretty incredible. And I've been fortunate to be able to connect with a lot of these um, really fascinating and um, really down-to-earth people during the process of, of, of making this film. Um, and so, yes, there are people whose livelihoods do depend on uh, what we might consider uh, leisure activity or um, uh, what a lot of people uh, view as sort of antiquated way of life, right? But it is a way of life. So in this specific area of land, which like you said, is relatively small and it's about 180 square miles, the people who are hunting and trapping are earning a living from uh, the harvesting of predators primarily as hunting and trapping guides. So um, there are a couple people who guide both in-state and out-of-state um, hunters and trappers to uh, harvest a variety of local wildlife, ranging from moose and caribou and doll sheep to bears and wolves as well. Um, so yes, a lot of these folks are uh, what you would consider to be trophy hunters, but there are also subsistence hunters and trappers who um, harvest what is referred to as fur bearers, um, which would be wolves and bears and marten and, and other animals that are trapped for their fur. And they do recoup uh, several hundred dollars for a wolf pelt. So um, they sell those at places like the Fur Rondi in Anchorage every year, uh, which is around the same time as the Iditarod, I believe. And so it's a gathering of people who are looking to buy and sell um, fur. So uh, those are the ways in which people uh, earn a living from the harvest of predators. Obviously, there are people in Alaska that are a part of these communities that are very much opposed to uh, this hunting, at least in this specific area, because of the proximity to Denali National Park. I mean, what, what's what's sort of the ultimate goal? Like, what do they what do they want to see in an I ideal scenario? Yeah. Um... 
you're definitely correct that there are hunters and trappers who disagree with what's going on in uh, the wolf townships. There are certainly some who think that you shouldn't be hunting and trapping right next to the park boundary period. And there are others who object to the means and methods that are being used. Uh, One example is uh, the method of bear baiting, which is legal under uh, Alaska hunting and trapping regulations, which allows you to set up um, registered bait stations where you use a variety of of food bait to lure bears to a specific site so that you can then shoot them. Um, And again, this is legal under Alaska law, and it is a method that's utilized in the the Wolf Townships and Stampede Trail. And so even within the local hunting and trapping community, you get disagreements about what methods should be used, what constitutes ethical behavior. Um, So you know, it would be a mistake to paint all hunters and trappers with the same brush. And I run into that issue over and over again, that people are adamant that they're not being lumped in with other hunters and trappers that they consider to be unethical. And that's an important distinction to make. So wildlife advocates have been um, pushing for increased protections, specifically for wolves in this area for a long time, like I mentioned. And what they would like to see is a reinstatement of what is widely referred to as the buffer zone, which was in place from about 2000 to 2010. that sort of enacted a moratorium on the hunting and trapping of wolves in that area, specifically to protect the packs that primarily reside within the park and have been studied in Denali National Park continuously for 80 years. Uh, So Denali is the only national parks property that in the early 1900s did not completely eliminate its wolf population. So the reason that Yellowstone is in the news a lot with uh, wolf reintroduction is that they were reintroduced and they had to be reintroduced because they were eliminated um, from the park in its early days. Denali didn't do that. So it's had a continuous wolf population for the entire history of the park. And starting in the 1930s, they were um, began to be formally studied by park biologists and have been studied since then. So it's one of the longest running biological studies of wolves in the world. Wow, super fascinating. And, and, and I know that's one of the threads that you're following in your film is you know, that active wolf research that's going on in the park. If we look at, you know, you're you're talking sort of a little bit about the the history of Denali National Park um, and, you know, this specific area, the wolf townships that you're talking about is kind of like, it's kind of like this finger that like sticks into the park itself, right? And it's like, you know, when, when you're in the wolf townships, right? Like on three sides of you, you're surrounded by... Denali National Park, right? So, like, I, I, I guess, like, the first sort of fundamental question is, like, like why? You know, like, is there some historic reason as to why the Wolf Townships were not included in Denali National Park? And is there anybody, like, advocating to in- include it as a part of the park? Yeah, so uh, that is sort of a a fascinating history. So Denali National Park was founded in 1917 primarily as a refuge for doll sheep. And the doll sheep were uh, under threat because they were being harvested to feed crews that were building the railway up there. And so that's why Denali National Park was originally founded and for the first, you know, several um, decades um, 
like almost more than 60 years of its existence, it consisted of about 2 million acres. And that original 2 million acres is still referred to as sort of the core of the park. In 1980, as part of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, uh, otherwise referred to as ANILCA, um, the park was expanded to 6.4 million acres, including some preserve lands and some expanded um, lands around that original 2 million core acres. So as part of the negotiations for the expansion of Denali National Park, that's also when it was renamed, by the way, it was originally McKinley National Park. And so as part of the negotiations for that expansion, this little tract of land, which is about 25 miles long and 180 square miles in area, um, was left out of the park. And there's a lot of speculation and sort of theories about why this was. Part of it is private land and was private holdings at the time. So there's some speculation that that was part of it. And the state had an interest in, in keeping that in, in, in private hands. And, um, and so they did. And so they left it out of those negotiations. You know, I spoke with Alaska State Representative uh, Andy Josephson, and he pointed out that if you look back at the congressional record at the time, it was, and this was during the Jimmy Carter administration, um, it was always hoped that that stretch of land would be included in the park at a later date so that there would be some future negotiations that could include that stretch of the park. Here's a clip of that interview that Ramey conducted with former Representative Andy Josephson. People want to go... When they go to a national park, they want to see something as it always was. That, that's what they want to see. They know that that's why the park was created, right? And um, it's just a legal happenstance that there's this literal and figurative carve-out to the north and, I suppose, to the east of Denali National Park that uh, is inviting seasonally to wolves to escape to. And... Um, these things that we treasure uh, are then devalued in, in, in a most, uh, you know, shameful way, some of us think. Um, and so the things that are studied and loved and, and viewed and that, that offer economic value and spiritual value are then um, affected in a permanent way through capture, uh, through taking by trapping and hunting. And, you know, I think, I think that we need to do something about that. But when it came down to the wire for Anilka, they had to leave that, that portion of land in state control. And ever since then, ever since 1980, this tract of land has been, in, uh, you know, a, a, an item of contention. And it was recognized even at the time to be vital habitat for um, the Denali caribou herds. And it still is, especially in the wintertime, they tend to range up into this area. And the reason that it's such, you know, a, a vulnerability for the park's predators is because they follow their prey, which are the caribou, into this area uh, during the winter. So you, you were talking about, you know, how Denali National Park is, you know, has the longest running uh, research study on wolves. I guess I'm curious what that research is showing as far as the impact that this hunting in the wolf townships has on the population, right? And, and, and you know, specifically because you said that there was a moratorium 
on hunting and trapping in the wolf townships from 2000 to 2010. So, I mean, that it seems to me like that presents an interesting opportunity to, to actually directly measure the impact that this hunting activity has on the population. It does, yes. And the um, current wolf biologist in the park, Dr. Bridget Borg, has done some analysis on um, sort of the the viewability of wolves within the park related to the presence or the absence of this buffer zone or this moratorium uh, up in the wolf townships. So um, that's sort of the angle that National Park Service is currently taking is trying to determine the impact on um, on tourists' ability to see wolves within the park um, regarding trapping and hunting at the boundary. So as far as population levels, that's very difficult to determine because population levels of wolves within any given area fluctuate a lot naturally. Um, There's a lot of pack-on-pack conflict. There's a lot of mortality and pack dissolution that is unrelated to human harvest. So it's very difficult to make some sort of direct correlation on, uh, you know, population level uh, of wolves within the park and the population in this area and within the park is currently at a healthy level. So it's not like there's any concern that wolves within Denali are going to disappear. Um, And generally when um, a pack dissolves or, um, uh, you know, uh, pack leaders are are killed and um, thus, you know, there's there's sort of a hole in territory, other packs and other wolves from other areas move into that territory. So that's not really so much the concern for the national parks as it is a potential impact on um, viewer satisfaction or um, visitor satisfaction within the park insofar as they are able to view wolves. Um, because the primary reason that visitors come to Denali National Park is to see wildlife, to see the mountain, to see Mount Denali, but also to see wildlife. And wolves are definitely one of the species that people are excited about seeing. So um, Dr. Borg uh, has definitely done some analysis to try to determine if there's an impact of um, the presence of that buffer zone on the ability of visitors to Denali to see Uh, wild wolves. And uh, there does seem to be, uh, according to one of her recently published articles, uh, a correlation uh, between uh, the presence of that buffer zone and an increase in uh, viewing of wolves within the park. However, the caveat there is that that would need to be, you know, from a scientific perspective, would need to be replicated. So the buffer zone would need to be back in place for another period of, you know, several years so that they could repeat the study and see if those numbers can be, you know, are, are, are replicated with the buffer back in place. So it's not really conclusive at this point. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence and um, the Washington Post and the Associated Press and several other outlets actually just published um, some informal uh, survey results that uh, were conducted by um, tour bus drivers within the park about uh, what appears to be very low level of wolf sightings within the park. Um, but again, making the connection between hunting and trapping at the boundary and, you know, a lower level of wolf sightings within the park is very difficult from a scientific perspective. So one of the things that we'll be doing in the film is sort of following, um, you know, the work that's being done by Dr. Borg and the National Parks Biology team um, to sort of see how they're going about analyzing the data to determine whether or not, you know, this has an impact on 
mobility of wolves. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's it's fascinating to me that it like the 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 point of concern is viewability of from tourists that are visiting the park. Like that, you know that that that's that's what at least. Uh, it sounds like the the park biologists are concerned about not the overall population of wolves, which uh, you know is is, is quite, again quite different from uh, like the way uh, sort of these wolf issues play out in the lower forty eight. It also means that like you know I mean you were talking about how the difficulty uh, between making that connection between the results of this study and, you know, like, uh, well, essentially like proving causation, right? Like proving that the hunting in the wolf townships is the cause of a decrease in viewership of wolves. Um, obviously that's, that's difficult to prove, but even if that were to be proved, it does not necessarily mean that there's a decline in population, right? Cause I could imagine that, you know, maybe the same number of wolves are in the park, but they're much more wary because they're being actively hunted. Correct. Yeah. And so you'll see that a lot when new wolves do come in to replace a pack that's um, dissolved or has been killed, whether that's through human harvest or through wolf on wolf conflict. Um, the wolves that move in have not been habituated to human presence yet, right? So there's a period of time when they move into the Denali area where they're likely to be a lot more wary of humans. And then over time, they get habituated. And ironically, it's this process of habituation. So the most visible wolves within Denali National Park are also the ones that, you know, are likely to be the most susceptible to hunting and trapping because they are so habituated to humans. Again, proving that is very difficult, right, from a scientific perspective. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of, you know, specific individual wolves who have been um, hunted or trapped within the wolf townships um, that have then led to the dissolution of those packs. And that's usually when an alpha um, or breeding individual within a pack is killed, uh, the rest of the pack often dissolves, right? So there's anecdotal evidence about the impact on these specific packs of hunting and trapping in this area, but um, proving scientifically something that's measurable is a lot more difficult. Looking at wolf issues in the lower 48, you know, you have these two very clear positions on on sort of opposite sides of the spectrum, right? You have this attitude that, that you know, is, is very common out here in the West where I live in Idaho, where, you know, the only good wolf is a dead wolf. That's like the, the extreme perspective on, on one side. And then on the other, you know, extreme end of the spectrum are environmentalists who just think that it's inherently wrong to kill a wolf, no matter what the situation. I don't know. It, it, it seems to me like there are not that many people at least that are actively expressing their opinion um, on this issue. Not that many people that are involved in the advocacy surrounding the issue that stand in the middle ground, right? And that support sort of active management of wolf populations that is based on the scientific research that's being conducted. But the situation in Alaska is is different, right? Because it, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I guess I'm sort of asking to kind of compare, uh, like, what's going on in Alaska with what's going on in the lower 48. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is one of the primary differences. Um, so even though it's the same topic and it's the same species, right? So people tend to say, oh yeah, wolves again, here we go. Right. But, um, the conversation is very different in Alaska. I'm finding, right. And I'm very much an outsider, right. I'm, I'm lumped in with, um, other people from the lower 48, uh, in terms of not being Alaskan, right. And not living that way of life. So my approach in exploring this topic is not of imposing my own views, but, but truly listening to people, right. Um, so yes, the conversation up there is much different than what is being had in the lower 48. Since there isn't livestock and there isn't concern about wolf predation on livestock necessarily, um, you know, with predator control policies and ungulates aside in the rest of the state, but in this one area, it's really more a conflict between competing views about the world and competing ideas about what public land is and who it's for, and also a resistance to outside interference in what is viewed as a time-honored way of life, really. So um, a lot of these people are afraid. They're afraid of, of losing their way of life and the way that they've been living for a, for a long time. I don't hear any of that narrative of, of wolf hatred, you might say, that you find sometimes in the lower 48. Um, you know, wolves have this amazing capacity to affect people on a very emotional level. And you will often see those two diametrically opposed and extreme points of view. Either wolves, you know, have this sort of deity status and they're amazing mythical animals that should never be you know, harmed and they're just, you know, like really sort of worshipped by some people. And then on the other side, you'll have, uh, you know, people who say things like a good wolf is a dead wolf, which that slogan has been around for a long time and um, is actually where the, the title of the film comes from is, is old slogans that were used to promote government bounties for wolves up in Alaska uh, in the early part of the 19th century. So yeah, those attitudes are old, right? But the hunters and trappers that I'm talking to up in Alaska who trap and hunt wolves as part of their livelihood and their way of life, not a single one of them will tell you that they want to see wolves eliminated from Alaska or from Denali or from anywhere. Uh, a lot of them think that wolves are really incredible, beautiful creatures. And for um, a lot of people, especially in the lower 48, uh, that's very difficult to wrap our heads around, right? A lot of people wonder, how can you think an animal is majestic and beautiful and, you know, you want it to stick around, but at the same time, you want to kill it? Um, so that's really difficult for people to understand. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to listen about when I'm talking to hunters and trappers up there is to understand how they, they view their way of life uh, in relationship to these animals and how they view themselves in relationship to the land. Because it really is a much different conversation that's be than uh, the ones that are being had in Idaho and Colorado and Montana um, around reintroduced wolves. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. And I, I mean, yes, and obviously, like, as you said, you know, this 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 idea of somebody who can, uh, uh, you know, truly like value a wildlife species and see that animal as like majestic and, and amazing, but also be be hunting or trapping that animal. I, I, I mean, I, obviously, that's difficult for a lot of people to understand. Um, it's not difficult for me to understand because I'm I'm a hunter. Like to me, that makes total sense, right? And I like it. It it's you know, but but like what's interesting to me is that it's like 
you know, the, the folks that are, I mean, it seems to me, right, like, uh, that the folks that are viewed as sort of on the uh, extreme sort of uh, spectrum on one side of it, you know, like, I don't know, I mean, just hearing you say, like, there aren't any people up in Alaska that want to totally get rid of wolves. I mean, that is like night and day from uh, from the, the attitude in Idaho, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there might be a few. I haven't found any of them. Um, you know, the conversations that I have about wolves up there are, are very different from the ones that, that I've had in the lower 48, for sure. And, you know, and I, I can relate also. I, too, am a hunter. And, and that's one of the reasons that um, I think I've been able to to connect with the hunting and trapping community up there, um, you know, in, in in a fairly authentic way. And I think that they that they that they trust that I'm there to listen, right? And that I'm not there to impose values from the lower 48 or, you know, what I think they should be doing. And I'm and I'm not. I am there to listen. I think that that one of the reasons that this conflict has been going on for so long unabated is that people have stopped listening to each other. And and you know, that's that's of course can be is applicable to a wide range of issues in this country right now. Um so so I really am there there to listen and and people have very valid concerns on many sides of this issue and i think that by by truly listening and by helping people express their concerns beyond just the issue of you know the species of the wolf because there are a lot deeper issues at play here yeah for sure so i i'm curious about your experience uh going up there um and and meeting with some of these folks right um because I know that you, you know, you know, I know you had an opportunity to uh, to meet with uh, at least one uh, trapper, uh, you know, uh, in in this area. So uh, I'm just curious, like, um, uh, what what that meeting looked like, and if you were surprised by how the interaction turned out. Sure. Uh, yeah, I've had uh, in-person conversations with several trappers in that area, actually. And, um, you know, I was somewhat surprised by some of them. Um, I was um, surprised by them personally, and I was also surprised by some of the things that uh, they had to share with me personally. They were they were viewpoints that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, you know, I, I try to not have too many um, foregone conclusions before showing up to, to meet with somebody. Um, but there are a couple individuals who have received quite a lot of national press regarding this issue. Um, and so I think that um, the way that they have been portrayed in the media uh, definitely sort of predisposes one to think about them in a certain way, right? Because especially written media, uh, but all media will sort of pick and choose uh, what sort of sound bites they include in, in an article or in a story, right? And um, sometimes those sound bites don't accurately represent a, a person. Um, so yeah, I definitely had um, some ideas about how those interactions might go. Um, but, you know, fortunately, I've been able to forge um, great working relationships with uh, the people that I've been talking to up there. And, um, you know, I've assured them that I, I have no interest in misrepresenting them or their way of life or their viewpoint. And, and I mean that. Um, so, yeah, you know, I may not agree with with everything that they're doing on a personal level. And that's OK. Um, you know, I'm still very committed to being fair 
and to representing their concerns uh, in a way that is that is accurate and that that does justice to their concerns and 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 their way of life. Here's an audio clip from Ramey's interview with Hunter and Trapper Coke Wallace. The conservation dollars that are put in by hunters are quite a revenue generator, and hunters are the ones who've brought all these animals back, some of them from the brink. And hunters don't want all the wolves killed off. You know, I've said that many times. I want, I want my kid and his kids to have the opportunity to hunt and trap wolves if they choose to. And if they choose not to, that's fine too, but... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing what has been a, 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 a time-honored thing, you know. People have been doing it for hundreds of years and doing it right around here. I don't think that the people that don't pay into it should even have a say. I don't think the protectionists deserve a seat at the table, and I've said that for years, and that's somewhat controversial with people, but once you give them a little bit, you know, they're takers. They don't have anything to give. And, and I really believe compromise is a concession in, in this endeavor, you know, and that's why I'm really fed up with compromising. Back to our interview with Ramey. So tell me where you're at in, in the filmmaking process. Sure, yeah. We are uh, planning another production trip up to Alaska in, gosh, just two weeks from now. So it's coming right up. We have three production trips lined up over the next year. So this one uh, here in August and September, and then another one in March um, to attend the uh, a, a regulatory meeting at which there is a proposal put forth by the National Park Service uh, about this issue, and also to be up there for winter wolf trapping season. And then uh, the third and final trip will be uh, in early summer of next year, so May and June of next year, um, to sort of get at the tourist angle a little bit more. Uh, so currently, we are in the stage of um, needing to crowdfund some of the funds to cover this next trip. So I've applied to over $150,000 in grant money, uh, but decisions on those take months, and I probably won't hear anything until about December. So we do have a crowdfunding site set up um, on Seed and Spark, which is a crowdfunding platform that specializes in, in filmmaking. And uh, we're hoping to raise about $14,000 to cover expenses for this trip, which goes toward equipment rental, travel expenses, and um, to pay a little bit for, for my crew, um, who currently are, are volunteering their time because they really believe in the importance of this story. Um, so that's where we're at currently. Uh, and, you know, we're really hopeful uh, that this project is, is going to be a really powerful way to communicate this story and sort of, uh, you know, dig deeper and, and, and talk about some of these deeper themes, uh, not only to Alaska audiences, but to audiences in the lower 48 as well. Uh, because I really think that most Alaskans, uh, not to mention people in the rest of the country, have any idea that this is going on. They don't even know how regulatory policies for wildlife management in Alaska is made. They don't know um, about about any of this, right? And um, so in presenting these different viewpoints within the film, um, you know, it's really important to me to trust my audience. I'm not there to make a piece of propaganda. I'm not there to say these people are right and these people are wrong. Um, I trust that audiences will be able to do that for themselves and make up their own minds. Uh, so that's the approach that we're taking and that's where we're at in the process. And so we welcome people to hop on board and contribute to the project, even if it's only a few dollars, everything helps at this point. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. 
Awesome. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be sure to share that link on the show notes page. It's super fascinating, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people like myself that work in conservation or involved in like conservation in some way, like hear a lot about the wolf issue. And I think this, this sort of analysis of like what's going on in this specific area up in Alaska and Denali is, is very informative to the broader issue, you know? Um, so it's, I mean, it's a super fascinating little story about what's going on, but it's definitely, um, has much broader implications. Yeah, it does. And it points to issues about, you know, hunters, as you know, hunters also view themselves as conservationists, right? And that's, that's uh, something that's, that's really important to recognize in this specific issue and in conservation more broadly. I think on this podcast, you've had guests before that talk about um, sort of the link between hunting and conservation in America. And that's at play here as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that this specific story, although it's a familiar topic and people, um, you know, likely they look at it and they just think, oh gosh, yeah, wolves, I got that. Right. But no, Denali is unique and Denali sort of, um, you know, set the tone, uh, in, in the beginning for the debate about wolves in this country and, and continues to, to be an important way to understand the relationship, uh, between humans and wolves and how we might coexist and what that looks like. That was Ramey Newell, the documentary filmmaker behind the new film, A Good Wolf. Be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode to learn more about her project and how you can contribute to its success. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC183. Of course, I'd also encourage you to visit our Patreon campaign for Eyes on Conservation and join the growing group of people that are actively supporting this show. You can find that link on the show notes page as well, or by going to patreon.com slash wildlenscollective. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Today's episode was produced by me, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.